You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. So welcome to Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. (laughs) Shane, how are you doing today, man? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm all right. What did you do this weekend? Uh, I read a lot. Yeah? I read a whole lot. I probably spent like eight hours yesterday just sitting and reading. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I'm impressed. I never get to do that. So I was like, I'm going to go ahead and do that. What did you do this weekend? I went and saw, I did a lot of things. Mostly I ate a lot of food, but I was hanging out with family. I went to go see a Penn and Teller show in Las Vegas. It was all cool. Stuff like that. Yeah, that's fun stuff. So Shane, how much of your choice to spend eight hours reading was due to your genes? Hmm. I would say my choice, probably very little. I would imagine. Okay. You know, if you had a twin, do you have a twin? You don't have a twin. I do not have a twin. Nobody needs another me. <laughs> if there was another Shane Spiker, well, probably have a different name. Let's call him Sean Spiker. Sean Spiker. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to come up with this. I want to think of something Amish. Uh, maybe Josiah. I don't know if that's Amish though. Ezekiel. Ezekiel Spiker. Then I could compare you two and I could see which one of you spent eight hours reading this weekend and which one did not. And then we'd be able to know if you both spent eight hours reading or somewhere in there, then I could say that maybe that is a genetic choice, right? Yeah. I mean, you could make that argument, I guess, if you're comparing that information. (laughs) So, of course, that means that if you haven't already guessed by reading the title of this, we are talking about twin studies. And with respect to twin studies, this is something that people have used to try and answer the question of why we do what we do. Yeah, that's that's one of the major motivations for people doing twin studies and specifically how much of the choices that we make, the things that we do, is due to our genetic makeup, right? Right. So this is the quintessential nature versus nurture argument, right? Oh, good point. This is where we go back and we're like, is it this? And this is kind of one of the ways that we could make that argument. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. That's a really good point. I don't know if people know, but when I initially started this, I wanted to name the podcast Nature and Nurture. And I really liked that name. And then some biologist picked it up and then they made their own podcast called that. And I hadn't made anything at that point. So I had to change it. But I like why we do what we do. I think that was a good title when we landed on it. So this is very much in keeping with the theme I sort of had in mind when we originally started developing this podcast. So anyway, Today, what we're going to be talking about is what are twins and what are twin studies more specifically? Why do people do twin studies and what can we learn from twin studies? And we'll also go into some of the history of this and all that useful information for setting the context of how and why this has happened, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm a little bit stuck on calling the podcast Nature and Nurture. I immediately thought that that was a holistic parenting podcast. So I can't. Okay, so so our title is better than that one. Great. Oh yeah, no, for sure, for sure. I agree. I think the idea here is like just kind of walking into this and if you don't understand what a twin is, I think there's a lot of social discussion and like some buzzwords around twins, like people say twinning and huh. and all that. We're actually talking about like genetic twins here. Like we're talking about people that are genetically related that are identified under the umbrella of twins, and I think this is going to be a lot of fun to kind of explore. Okay, so in order to understand the idea about twin studies, I think we need to do a quick refresher on genes, genetics, I guess. So genes are these unique segments of nucleotides in DNA, which is 
for anyone who cares, deoxyribonucleic acid. That's what DNA <laughs> you stands did, for. You did that on purpose. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I feel like people are interested. I actually just played a quiz today that was asking, what does the A stand for in DNA? And I knew because I am interested in that sort of thing. And so if anybody cares, there's that. Anyway, this DNA is code for the production of amino acid sequences of proteins. Okay. So amino acid sequences make up protein molecules. So in short, genes are, they're kind of like programs in our DNA that tell our cells how to form the parts of the cells that make up our body. So more or less, they tell our cells how to form our body, how to form our brain, how to form our skin, how to form our bones, how tall we're going to be, how, I guess, well-structured certain parts of us are going to be, like if our heart has some kind of arrhythmia or some kind of issue where it's doesn't develop fully or things like that, that people end up struggling with those conditions throughout their lives. Those all come from those little programs that are called genes inside of our DNA. Okay. At once we believed that humans had an enormous, just unfathomable amount of genes. And when they went through and did the human genome project, they discovered we have around 20 to 25,000 genes, which is a lot. Not as much as they originally thought, which I think was somewhere in the hundreds of thousands to millions of genes range, but 20,000 to 25,000 is still a lot of genes, right? Yeah, that's quite a bit. And a single zygote contains all of the genes a human being will ever have. Okay, this is you have a fertilized spermazoa and egg that have or ovum, I guess, if I'm going to use the other term, have come together and is a fertilized little zygote thing has all the genes that that human being is ever going to have. They will not develop new genes. They will not grow more genes unless they come into contact with some radioactive superpower type of thing. But otherwise, <laughs> they have it all together right then and there from the very beginning. Or if they undergo CRISPR, which might edit or delete some of their genes. But generally speaking, that's what they got. So we know that human behavior is influenced by not one single gene, but is invariably polygenic. Or essentially what this means is it's influenced by many genes that have a cumulative effect to produce a behavior. It takes more than one single gene, even though we have... 20,000, 25,000, however many we have, it takes more than one to make something happen. Right. So you can't go changing a single gene to even a small group of genes to try and change a specific behavioral trait because all of the behaviors that we engage in are a part of a very eclectic for one thing, but a unique tapestry of active and inactive genes that work together and that changing any one part of that sequence will cascade into a completely different available pattern of influence that may or may not move that one action, that observable behavior in a way that you could predict because it's complicated and it's not based just on that tapestry of interacting genetic code. Yeah. So essentially what you're saying is it's pretty complex. Yeah. No. <laughs> that is, I guess I could have just said that and then left it there. <laughs> but that doesn't get into the cool stuff. True. And also not to our point yet. Right. Exactly. So when we talk about genes and we're talking about twins, it's important to kind of understand how this works. So twins or triplets or quadruplets and on and on and on can either be monozygotic or identical, or they can be dizygotic or fraternal. And essentially monozygotic or identical twins occur when a single zygote splits and forms as an identical copy in the womb and both grow into two genetically identical people or three or four, depending on how many times a zygote splits. Yeah, right. Good call. Fraternal or dizygotic twins occur when multiple different ovum or different eggs are fertilized at the same time and develop as two genetically uniqueish humans in the womb. I love that. I love the term uniqueish. I'm going to start using that more often. <laughs> eh, kind of uniqueish. Yeah, they are different, but they're also coming from the same source. So they're not 
super different. Right. So they're unique-ish. <laughs> yeah. For dizygotic twins or fraternal twins, it's just a matter of timing. It's just siblings based on timing. <laughs> kind of. I mean, they're based off of basically how many different sets of DNA there are, but right. that is influenced by timing. So, yeah. And they both have different sets of DNA, albeit from the exact same sources. So they will contain a significant amount of variability between one another. So fraternal twins are, uh, you would say, more variable than identical twins. Yeah. You would generally expect that to be the case. Yes. When fraternal twins, you're more likely to see different heights, different sexes, things like that, because they come from different genetic material from the same source. So similar, but different genetic material for those two codes. Whereas when you have those monozygotics, it's basically like copy and paste. Mm -hmm. At least initially, you have the exact same code. Now, a lot of things are going to actually be different immediately, but at least the available genetic code starts the exact same. Now, there is something important that a lot of people get a little confused about in understanding genetics and that is that we need to distinguish between what we talk about with genes when we say things like heritability and genetics in terms of how those genes present and so asking the question of how much traits some behavioral or physical trait is due to genes would include heritability but it would also include random mutations in genes and epigenetic factors that is those genes, or maybe a single gene, that is change influenced by experience when I say those epigenetic factors, okay? However, heritability is actually a statistical concept that refers only to the extent to which the variability and presentation of genes is due to genes and gene combinations that were passed on from the parents. So to say that just a little bit differently, when those parents create the egg <laughs> the, the fertilized the zygote. zygote yes thank you when the parents create that fertilized zygote the traits that they put into that zygote that come from their dna from their genes those are the heritability traits however other things can affect how those genes show up and that's the more global sort of when we talk about genetics also includes things like there can also be random mutations in those genes that didn't come from the parents. It's just a thing that happens sometimes. It's one of the things that drives evolution is when those random mutations sometimes produce, I guess they make one more fit in their environment, so to speak. And fit's not a great term. There's lots of reasons not to use it, but they increase their survivability, I guess, and their ability to thrive and reproduce and that sort of thing. And also includes those factors where besides random mutations and the genes that were given to them by their parents, any environmental factors or experiences that might alter the genes that are active or inactive. So all of those are things that are involved when we say how much of this is due to genes, well, those, at least those three things, versus how much of this is due to heritability, which is just what do they get from their parents? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Heritability is more like here is the menu that you could pick from. Yep. You have access to all of this, and then all the mutations and all the other things are kind of like what we select. Or like we get most of the menu. Yeah. Okay. We don't get all the menu. I'm trying to think of it like the thing with heritability is like at the beginning, the zygote has everything. Mm -hmm. It has the opportunity to contact all of it. Yeah. But it doesn't based on variables that are out of its control. Maybe it's like here is a Lego set and the instruction manual for that Lego set. And you might not construct it exactly with respect to the instruction manual. You might even add some other pieces from other Lego sets that you have or take some out or change them in a way so that they look a little bit different. So you're mostly going to get the thing that you're trying to build, but you also might get something that's a little bit different from the thing you're trying to build. Hey, that's much better than what I said. <laughs>
it's not great, but it's something. Yeah, it works. So what's cool about this is we can now, at this day and age, we can relatively easily sequence a human's genes to determine what their genes are. So we can statistically say that there are genes that are usually active in correlation with a particular behavioral trait, which I think is kind of neat. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's something very interesting to learn about those correlations for sure. So let's just say, for example, that we have some gene, and I'm just going to pick a real gene, which is MTHFR, which kind of looks like it would spell out mother if it was more correct letters. Anyway, MTHFR. This is methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. That's a mouthful. Anyway, MTHFR is much easier. <laughs> let's just say that when we see this gene frequently active in people, that they also report having anxiety. Now, I'm just making this up. This is not actually a thing that's ever been shown. It's not associated with that. Would we then say, does this mean that the gene causes anxiety? If it is frequently observed and those people have anxiety, this is a correlation thing, right? A statistical thing. Or does anxiety cause that gene to become active? We don't know, really. But we can see that the two commonly co-occur. And then we might infer that there's some sort of cause-effect relationship there. And really, in fact, if you look at how most people approach this, that's kind of what they frequently, if not always do, is when they see that those two things coexist, they infer that one caused the other. And because we know that there are genes present, the inference tends to be genes caused that trait. I see what you're saying. I think I follow that. Okay. Another way we can determine the extent to which genes influence behavior is by making a copy of the genes and letting it loose in the world. And comparing the behavior and characteristic of the copied persons to see how similar they are. Right. And the extent to which they are similar is called the concordance rate. So, for example, if 90% of monozygotic twins scored high on an anxiety assessment indicating that they had anxiety, then the concordance rate would be high, right? It would say about 90% of the extent to which there's a correlation is very high. They would then say that there is a high correlation or a high concordance rate between anxiety and monozygotic twins and that therefore anxiety is largely genetic. In this case, 90%. Again, I'm just making this up as an example for how you might talk about these things is that we don't know at all if there was something else that contributed to that anxiety. But if we looked at all these sets of twins and 90% of them, if one had anxiety then the other one did then we'd say at least that we saw a high correspondence in those samples where if one of them had anxiety, then there was a 90% chance more or less that the other one would also have anxiety. And then the inference that's made from that is that that is a genetic trait. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And again, like I think the key word here that you're kind of getting into and you've said multiple times is inference, right? You're talking about correlation, inference. We're talking about making pretty close guesses, but not quite there. Right. It's trying to draw a relationship that could exist simply by observing, I guess, similarities in patterns. It's kind of a way of thinking about it. Yeah, commonalities. So let's dig into a little bit more. We've spent a lot of time now talking just about twins and genetics and also, I guess, correlations statistically <laughs> so let's dig into a little bit the history of twin studies because it's actually not as long as you might think or it might even be longer i'm not sure yeah so because i think twins are fairly fairly rare in terms of the scientific field as far as study goes like there's not a lot of stuff out there in general and maybe people just thought there was weird things going on with twins yeah 
I don't know. So let's start at the beginning. Let's do that. <laughs> okay. Great. I love it. All right. So twin studies seem to have mostly likely been pioneered by Darwin's cousin, Sir Francis Galton, who also coined the term nature versus nurture and eugenics. Yeah. He published a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. Cool dude. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm being facetious. Oh, not so much. For those of you concerned. <laughs> I don't know enough about him, so I can't make a statement one way or another about his character. Well, I mean, the eugenics thing. Not so good. Not so good. Yeah, yeah. So he published an article in 1875 called A History of Twins, in which he reported the results of a survey he conducted investigating the similarity among twins. So that's kind of where it started. Right. He was one of the first people to think that this was an interesting area where people should be doing study. He really didn't know how or why twins happened because we didn't have any kind of technology that spoke to that yet. And he also didn't know that there was a fundamental difference between twins that were born of one versus multiple eggs and sperm. So didn't know the monozygotic versus dizygotic or trizygotic or anything like that. But he believed that we could learn about the relative contribution of nature versus nurture, again, his term, by recording how similar or dissimilar those twins were. And I think that sparked such a great discussion in the field of psychology. And now we've come back and it's like, it's both. <laughs> yeah, it's been an interesting ride. I wonder how he feels about that. Probably not great. Yeah, he's probably like, oh, the thing that, that was so cool is not anything near what I thought it was. I think he would stick to his guns. He doesn't seem like a guy who did a lot of real self-reflection or critical thought right maybe i'm wrong that's maybe not fair he's he can't defend himself so whatever. yeah try to so another rosy figure Josef mengele was a nazi doctor awful 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 human who apparently in the footsteps of francis galton was fascinated by twins and other extreme genetic variances and had the authority by the nazi regime to perform any experiment he wanted with disposable lives of prisoners at auschwitz concentration camp he also was called the angel of death slayer has a song about him he is one of the worst yeah he's one of the worst humans who has ever existed and it's sad too because it was all sort of at least for him in the name of science and the stuff he did was pretty horrendous he was particularly interested in demonstrating that nurture was more important than nature and thus would strengthen the argument of nazis in destroying those genetically inferior races by showing that they didn't have a chance to be as good as their Aryan counterparts that they were trying to bolster up and say that these are the best. And so that was sort of his whole goal here was to confirm that hypothesis that you can rank races in terms of their good or badness. And he had very little reservation about doing this with human lives and treating them as though they were disposable. And we'll save you from some of the more horrific elements because it's not really necessary for understanding this. But in order to just understand a little bit of the history of the twin studies that were carried out, we will do a little bit more description. And going into this next part, if you are squeamish at all, please skip ahead yeah. a couple seconds because we are going to talk about things that he did. I mean, it'll probably be a minute maybe of discussion yeah yeah so just a heads up on that so what he liked to do was he liked to cause damage to one of the twins kill the other and see how they differed in a post-mortem examination for instance he once killed 14 twins in one experiment by injecting one in the heart with chloroform and then killing the other and then looked at their bodies to see how they were different post-mortem yep just as an example Ugh. and there were many other stories about things like this he was very interested in those genetic factors there and so wanted to see well if these two are genetically identical then if i mutilate this one how does that compare to its sort of baseline if you will of the unmutilated one and he did that a lot yes there were many some of the stories he would stand on a platform and as the trains would come in and he would point 
and select the twins right out of the crowd and bring them right to his lab. He would start right away when they arrived at the camp. I believe if I read correctly that his office was like directly adjacent to the some of the gas chambers. And so when he was done, just kind of usher them in there. Mm-hmm. Oof. Pretty awful human being. After World War II, there was an international effort to establish ethical guidelines in human research, partially in response to some of Mengele's brutal experiments. Is that right, Mengele? May, I've heard it pronounced a couple different ways. All I know is he's dead. So Okay. Menhele, Mengele's brutal experiments. And research has proceeded quietly with much better protection in place for human subjects in twin studies and really all other types of research in humans. And that's not to say that people still don't do unethical things sometimes, but his behaviors, his actions were kind of a catalyst for policies to drive change in better practices. And a lot of human life protection. So there was some good that came out of the end of that. Yeah. You know, unfortunately. Right. A better way to say it is not that it was like good, but that we learned from the mistakes. Yes. That's a much better way to put that. So, <laughs> Now, we've talked about this a little bit so far, but I think we want to make sure we really talk about why people are so interested. Why was Sir Francis Galton interested in twins? What did they see in twins that would lead to useful research? And I guess Joseph Mengele as well. But what is the philosophy of wanting to do these twin studies? Just let's give that a nice overview. So there are essentially two comparisons that are examined when conducting a study on genetics by using twins. The first, whether they are monozygotic or dizygotic, and whether they are raised in the same environment or in different environments. So you've got those two camps. You've got whether they're identical or fraternal, whether they live together or they don't. Yeah. And if we use the term, it does come up that when they're raised in separate households, they often call that being reared apart, just in case people hadn't heard that. I just want to make sure that we're clear on that. Now, this whole approach does seem sort of logically intuitive, right? If you have two identical twins, so they have the same genetic makeup and they're separated at birth or early on in their childhood, let's just say that they ended up in some adoption system and they were raised in different geographical locations, never meeting one another never really living in the same household, you can look for the similarity between those two twins compared to monozygotic twins who were raised in the same household. So again, they were identical, but they were raised by the same parents, that sort of thing. And if the monozygotic twins reared apart have similar traits at similar concordance with the monozygotic twins raised together, then that would imply that those traits were highly genetic traits, basically as a percentage of how many pairs of twins had that kind of correlational comparison. Yeah, that makes sense. So if they found similarities, they could say that it was genetic. That's basically the conclusion that they're drawing here. On the other side of that, if there were twins that grew up in different homes that did not have high concordance on a trait that was high among twins raised in the same home, then it would be inferred that the trait was due to environmental or nurture factors. So it was something to do with the environment in which they were in and not necessarily related to their genetics. Right. Now, there's a very important assumption in here that gets overlooked very frequently when people try and talk about, think about, or assume that they know a lot about how to interpret twin studies and the quality of them. And that there is this implicit assumption that two people living in the same household have a what's called shared experience. And what that means is that if you assume that being raised apart versus being raised together could demonstrate the significance of the contribution of genes versus experience, then you have to assume that those twins that are being raised in the same environment must therefore have a shared environment or the same experiences. So I just want to say that one more time. The assumption here 
is that people who live in the same household have the same experiences. Does anybody believe that? <laughs> I do not believe that for a second. Even when you look similar, even when you are the same age, even when you have similar names, maybe you are just not going to have the exact same experience. And those little differences, while each little tiny difference that they have is not going to be a catalyst for a totally different experience or personality, they add up and they add up a lot over time that those little differences that they experience become important factors in determining who they're going to be, even when they're in the same household. Yeah. So, for example, if Abraham and I were growing up in the same house and we we're the same age and we listened to the same music and we ate the same food, there's still subtle differences in the experience that we have in that house. There's no way that we could say that a shared experience could possibly exist. Right. You know, one parent might interact with me differently than Abraham. One parent might treat us both the same, but the way that we experience the consequences for the behaviors that we engage in might be a whole different experience. So there's just no way that two people, no matter how identical they are, could share that same experience. You got to imagine, too, little things like where one of the twins learns to maybe get attention in a particular way by jumping into a conversation or by being in a certain place where they just got lucky and it happened to work out well for them one time. And they then figured out from there, oh, I can actually make this happen by putting myself in this situation or taking this action. Whereas the other twin doesn't have that opportunity in that one instance where it needed to happen. And so they sort of instead learn to sort of wait their turn and just hope that they get called on. And you start to see the drift where they never, if one of them has the experience of being able to recruit attention and get control of a situation by being assertive, by the accidental happenstance of being just in the right place at the right time, and the other one didn't. And instead, the only thing that they ever practiced was, I'm just going to wait until I get an opportunity to do this thing and not be assertive. Those paths would diverge as one of them continued to be at least successful enough to continue being assertive and the other one continued to be at least successful enough being sort of shy and quiet and reserved. And like, it doesn't take very much to get on a different path altogether. That's one of the most important things about these studies and brings us to this idea of critiques, right? So there are a lot of critiques about studies that are important to address so that we can understand why there are some problems with these types of studies. Absolutely. So there are understandably some concerns about the assumptions of the shared experience assumption, right? Right. Safe to say that the environment in which two people were both raised is going to be more similar than that if they were raised in two different places. So they will have a right. similar experience, but it will not be shared and it will be, it will still be closer than two people who lived in very different scenarios. Right. Like for sure. But it is a tall order to suggest that both people share the exact same experiences in that environment. Yeah. And furthermore, there are these interpersonal factors to consider and how having one another around may actually influence preferences or choices that would cause them to do similar or different things. So, for instance, let's say that there were twins that were really good friends and one of them wanted to play music. They wanted to learn an instrument. But the other one wasn't really interested in learning music, but they spend time together, they are friends, they sort of use each other as a resource for one another, and because one of them really wants to start learning to play an instrument, they both start taking music lessons because of their relationship to one another. That's not a crazy thing that this could happen. If they'd been raised separately, perhaps only one of them would have studied music, or alternatively, the other one would have been pressured by their peers or siblings to learn music or something, and you can see that Although it looks like the factors there are due to genetics, it was really entirely due to their circumstances. And you can't rule out 
what the thing was that was the most influential there. Like they obviously had to have the opportunity and they also had to have the interest or the motivation to do it. Or if the twins didn't get along and one might choose to do something differently from the other one just because they didn't want to do the same things, that's something that's a perfectly viable scenario that could happen. Right. Maybe one of them chooses to do sports and the other one who's interested in sports but instead chooses to do drama because he didn't want to do the same thing his brother did. Had they been raised apart, it might appear that sports was not genetic, but if they were both interested and only one of them did it, then how would we possibly know? Yes, exactly. So most of the things that are studied in twins are most likely psychological traits such as personality, IQ, and then other standardized psychological assessments that people like to do. And while many of these the assessments themselves have been psychometrically validated as being reliable assessments. They still include measurement error and unintended bias from the researchers when that's available to take place. So just something to consider in terms of how we then compare those similarities or differences. Oh, humans and your errors. <laughs> we don't make errors. We're perfect. We don't. Yeah, no, 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 no. All right. And so finally... One of the criticisms against the idea of twin studies is that we can at all rule out any of the variables from one another, that we can separate them and say this is more due to genetics or more due to experience, etc. And in this really great article published in 1998, Steve Hayes, who was a guest on the podcast, actually, he calls the idea that, quote, the structure of an organism or its parts fully explains its contextually situated actions, end quote. He calls this biologism. Okay, or biologism, maybe. Again, I'm going to say that again. It's this the idea that the structure of the organism will explain its actions, those actions that are situated in context and circumstance. And he goes on to explain that you never have genes without an environment. You also never have an environment without genes. So, and he uses this word here, he calls it a wrong-headed question to begin with. And so I'm going to quote him again directly, and this is a little bit long, but it really encompasses so many important qualities that I need to just say everything the way he said it, because he's great in the way he phrases things sometimes. And also, he gives this really interesting and useful metaphor. So he says, quote, let me give a common sense example to the problem of the additive question about interactive phenomenon. What percentage of water is oxygen? If one counts molecules, one answer is given. If one adds atomic weights, another is given. But the real answer is, that's a nonsensical question. That is not an additive phenomena, and thus we cannot reduce it to percentages. Without both hydrogen and oxygen combined in a particular way, we have no water. And if one insists on talking in percentage terms, the closest we can come to an honest and accurate answer is that water is 100% due to hydrogen and 100% due to oxygen and 100% due to their interaction. Human beings are like that. If someone asks what percentage of behavior is genetic versus environmental, the real answer then is that is a nonsensical question. Behavior of organisms is not an additive phenomena, and thus we cannot reduce it to percentages. If one insists on talking in percentage terms, the closest we can come to an honest and accurate answer is that behavior is 100% due to genetics, is 100% due to environment, and 100% due to their interaction. End quote. Ugh. And I think he just says so well that it doesn't make sense conceptually, empirically, in any way to try and separate these things that they only exist because they're mixed together. You don't have behavior without genes and environment. You just don't. It's impossible. And I think that's one of the most important takeaways from all of this is twin studies are great, but the question they're asking about twins is not about twins. <laughs> it's i mean that's really the core of it right right and what he's saying is like the question that we're asking 
doesn't make sense for what we're trying to answer because there is no answer for that, really. And twins are not the way to find that answer because the question itself is wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think there are interesting medical questions you can ask about twins in terms of, let's say that one twin has a heart disease. Are we likely to predict then that the next twin has heart disease? Well, I mean, that depends a lot on their diet and their exercise and things like that. But maybe there is something to know there about the likelihood that they're going to develop uh, heart disease. And it might be worth putting in some kind of intervention in place for one twin if they know the other one is starting to experience heart problems. They may not. You know, it might not actually be due to any of those. There might not be specific genetic variables that were more like make them more sensitive, I guess, to the environmental factors that would cause them to develop heart disease. But maybe they are. And it doesn't hurt to try and be preventative about it. But even in those medical questions, you're still dealing with exactly the problem I just raised in this, which is that there are so many other circumstances that influence health. Like the extent to which one's health is due to genes depends on your environmental circumstance. If you are a very perfectly genetic, healthy, fit, normal individual, and I blast you with ionizing radiation, you are going to be a very different individual and your health is going to be affected by that you'll probably get radiation poisoning and die. But that was not something that was caused by the genes that you had. That was caused by your genes interacting with the environment in such a way that your body was physically destroyed. Right? Right. And so if you had two people who one of them, let's say one of them smoked and one of them did not, and they both got lung cancer, there's something to to ask inside of that in terms of what happened here. Right? Like what part of lung cancer is due to smoking versus something else. Like maybe that one of them was a firefighter or one of them, you know, was around some other chemical that got in them. Anyway, it's just, it's really a big complicated thing. And that lends itself to the question of contextual variability. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. If you really dig into it, traits are great and in, in understanding it from that medical perspective and all that, like genealogy is an important science, right? The study of genes is an important science. Yes. I hope that nobody takes it away that like, ah, genes are stupid. Right. No, we don't mean that at all. I'm not saying that. But the question of, is it nature versus nurture is not one that can ever be answered because it is always nature and nurture. Yes, which is why I wanted to name it that in the first place, but I, I, I get the association you had there. That's my own learning history. That's all. Right. No, no, it's all good. Another thing that I think about sometimes is if you were to take two genetically unique people who were not from the same parents, they were not from the same even cultural ethnicity in any way, and grew up in maybe different places in the world but ended up having very, very similar behavioral traits. Maybe they both liked the same sports. They both liked the same food. They both liked the same music. They both were a similar height. They both had similar hair color and eye color. They maybe both had the same sort of exercise habits, and yet they had next to nothing genetically in common aside from the fact that they were both human beings. Then do we say this was caused by their genes? You know, at that point, again, we're looking at you are intentionally selecting a sample to represent your hypothesis as opposed to just trying to observe what's actually happening and take all the variables into consideration. Absolutely. So another couple interesting tidbits to hit on this real fast. There were a couple of TV show or like documentaries that were planned to explore some of the interesting ways in which twins were super similar, even though they were raised apart and never knew one another. But in the production of these documentaries, they ran into so many instances of how different the twins were that they end up just canceling the documentary because of their, and I'm going to quote here from this book, 
the show collapsed under their own unpersuasiveness <laughs> because although they did have some things in common, they had a tremendous amount of things that they were very different in. And one thing that people often don't consider is that when people have a lot of things in common, the things they have in common are often unique simply to the place and time that they grew up in. So people who are born in the 60s, you could pick any two people born in the 60s, and there is a pretty good chance that they're both going to like or at least have listened to the Beatles. There is no gene that's like, you will like the Beatles. Right. It just doesn't exist. There's not a, even a gene for you'll like rock music. Right. That's just not a thing. Right. right? But they're likely to, they're going to have similar exposure to the same kind of things that are available in the culture at the time that they were growing up and having those experiences. So in that way, they did have a sort of shared environment but that's the reason that you saw those similarities if that makes sense right it's a shared cultural experience or shared environment but not shared experience itself right there's another study i kind of liked that i'm just going to drop into this as part of i think this is useful in the interesting this this section talking about interesting tidbits just because i didn't really do a deep dive on the study I'm, i'm reading it from a book but what they did is they took 50 college students They didn't know each other. They were unrelated and they paired them together just based on age and sex. Okay. So there's 25 pairs of them. And one pair of them specifically showed this remarkable similarity between one another. Both of them were Baptists. Both of them were pursuing nursing careers. Both of them were passionate about volleyball and tennis. Both of them detested, I guess, shorthands. They both liked math and English, and they both liked to go on vacation at historical places, like really weirdly specific things that they were able to find that these two people were very, very similar. But the point is that you can just take two people who are similar and you can find a lot of commonalities And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with genes. And if you're going to point to two twins and say when they're similar is due to genes, then what are you going to say when you point to two people who are unrelated and don't even know each other who are very similar? Because you can't then point and say, well, it's both due to their genes. I mean, on the one hand, as we sort of pointed out with that earlier quote, yeah, it kind of is because everything is. And no, it's kind of not because everything's also environmental. Mm -hmm. So to end on this, that section here that I like so much is... Again, it's 100% genetics, it's 100% environment, it's 100% the interaction of those two things. And I think that does it. That sums it up so perfectly. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I just like to leave it on. Twin studies are not going to tell us very much about psychological personality characteristics or behavioral traits. Nope. Not even close. Not any more than simply observing a human being and like recording and analyzing the data that is a analysis of their performance on whatever it is. Yep, absolutely. I 100% agree with that. Okay. So the next time that you hear of some twin study that showed X, Y, and Z, then you know that the premise was wrongheaded and incorrect and nonsensical. And you can tell them Shane and Abraham said it from the beginning that it was a flawed question. Right. You can tell them that. We're fine with that. You should. Definitely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Cool. Got anything else on that? I have nothing else. I think that sums it up perfectly. You can't go wrong with a little Steve Hayes quote. Sweet. All right, then let's go into a quick listener mail. Okay, so we have one of our frequent listeners, Bob Warsham, wrote in. He said, in your podcast on mental hospitals, you said that Willowbrook was in upstate New York. It is not. It is on Stanton Island, New York, which is about as south as you can go in New York State. Geraldo Rivera got famous by doing an expose on Willowbrook. He just walked in with cameras and started looking. And then when we <laughs> we were making a joke that I couldn't remember which states bordered which, and so we're talking about crossing... <laughs> 
the Rhode Island state line. And I said, I think I said originally Delaware. And then I said, we may as well just make it Alaska since I'm just making it up. And he said, you youngsters need to learn some geography about the country, which is perfectly fair. So I guess this is less of a listener mail than it is just simply a correction. But I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Bob Warsham, for uh, correcting our incorrect geography there. And I think it's useful for people to hear where the actually was. It was not in upstate New York. It's in Staten Island. It's very south New York. It's in not upstate, but downstate. Yep. And Rhode Island does not go to Delaware. (laughs) Yes. So thank you for that feedback. We do appreciate it. Rhode Island's to Delaware. I feel like there should be a pun in there somewhere, but I can't get it. I think I'm too tired to get it. That's fair. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I do have also a quick update I wanted to share with everybody. We have a new member of our team who is doing all the production. He also does our music, Justin Greenhouse. I really want to say thank you so much for his awesome production help on the last few episodes. If you have been listening for a while and you all of a sudden noticed that our episodes started sounding really good, then it is because of Justin and because I'm not (laughs) handling as much of the production as I was before. And uh, so we really appreciate him being a member of our team. And I know I've mentioned it before, but just in case you weren't sure, we're now on iHeartRadio and Pandora and there's a whole bunch of new ones. I don't remember what they all are. We're on all the places. Everywhere that I've looked to try and find our podcast, we exist. We're on smart speakers. You can ask it to play why we do what we do, and it will do that thing. And so that's all those places. Anyway, if you are interested in correcting us on someplace where we got our geography long, we're happy to hear it. And we will share your correction on here. If you would like to tell us about your twin and how similar or different you are from one another... I did. This is not a great place to say this, but I I taught a class once where I had someone in my class and we were talking about twin studies and twins. And she was talking about how she was reunited with a long lost sister of hers when they were like in their 20s. And they both like to go to Starbucks at the same time of day. And she's like, we just have that like connection, you know, I'm like, hmm. I don't know what to do with that. So no. Yeah. Sorry, Courtney. I don't know what you're saying. (laughs) Like, I'm surprised that you think that's a thing. So we're going to move on. Because I don't care. Anyway, just to say, if you have some cool story you'd like to share with us about your twins, we will not make fun of you, I promise. But we would be happy to hear it. And if you'd like us to read it on listener mail, we're happy to do that too. So feel free to write us in. Sounds good. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for recording with me, Shane. Anytime. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. And we are out. See ya. Sorry, that was weird. All right, bye. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.